Well, as we know, today is Christmas, and as we think about Christmas, obviously we think about the birth of Christ and the significance of the birth of Christ. And so we think about the significance of the birth of Christ, we think about the Christmas story. A lot of times we have some sentimental understandings of Christ being born. These aren't necessarily bad things, and we think of the nativity scenes and these sorts of things. But one of the under, undervalued characters of Christmas is John the Baptist. And how John the Baptist is one who has a view of the Christ. But on the one hand, we can say he's not expecting the right Christ. But on the other hand, when we put this in the context of Scripture, we can understand that his expectations really aren't that far off and he's not misguided. But yet we find even John himself wrestling with the significance of the Christmas story. And so is John then one who is inappropriate in this? Is he one that does not fully grasp the significance of Christ and discredit himself? Or do we see that the story of Christ is far more complex and profound than we even imagined? And so I'd like to address this as we begin with who is John, what is his mission, and what is his Christmas association. And so first, who is John? Well, the simple answer is he is a prophet, a man who is born to a priestly couple. Now there is some scandal, and it's not juicy scandal, it's more scandal in terms of a small community uh, stirring up rumors about his parents. See, his parents, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they were elderly. They're both of a priestly line and of a priestly lineage. For someone to truly be blessed in terms of this genealogy or this lineage of being a priest, uh, they should have children, but they are barren. And so the, 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 the sort of rumors that can start around this is what's going on with them? What, what is the Lord not approving of in terms of this couple? But rather we can see that there's sort of a, a situation where there's doing the play on what Israel is. It's really barren toward the purpose of God in terms of this priestly line. Now there's an irony in his father's name. His father's name is Zechariah. As he's Zechariah, he's one who truly waits upon the Lord or trusts the name of the Lord. But we find that He's one who is mute because he does not truly trust in who the Lord is. He doesn't truly wait upon the Lord, as his name states. And we find his mission or his call where he hears about this child he's going to have is where he ministers at the altar. Now, this is the offering of incense. Uh, this is not something that uh, priests would do often. The high priest usually does this once in their lifetime. So it's a once-in-a-lifetime event where one would go into the most holy place, offer incense. And so Zechariah doesn't know what to expect. He, he knows he's supposed to go in there. He goes in there and he encounters an angel. And the angel tells him, which always cracks me up, do not be afraid. I don't know if you see an angel in his glory standing in your presence. I don't think the first thing you think is do not be afraid. I think it's I'm terrified, much like Isaiah, being called into the presence of God. Well, Zechariah understands the angel isn't here 
to condemn him or to convict him or to rebuke him even. In fact, the angel is here to announce good tidings, good things, good news. That Zachariah and Elizabeth are going to have a child. And this child is going to be like Elijah. Now we think about Elijah and his mission. Uh, he's a prophet of reform. He's a prophet who brings a resurrection to the Gentiles. He's one who brings food in the midst of famine. He's a prophet who engages in an incredible battle of the gods and shows that the God of Israel truly is triumphant uh, over the Baal. And so we think about this history, the prophet who's taken up in a chariot, a prophet who truly moves from suffering to glory in reforming Israel. And so Zechariah hears that this is what's going to happen. He's going to have a child, but not just a child, a child who's going to be in the line of Elijah, announcing the event of the Messiah. And so this child, in terms of this, sets the stage for an important time in covenant history. Not only is Zachariah and Elizabeth's uh, reproach going to be taken away where they are barren and have no children, but now they're going to bring into history a child <coughs> excuse me, who is a forerunner to the Messiah. This child will announce the coming of the Messiah, which is why I wanted to read from Malachi. Malachi goes through this. This is a child who announces the coming of the day of the Lord, the establishment of the kingdom, the ultimate advent of, of, of what everything was pointing to and looking forward to, of the final judgment, glorification, entering into the rest of God. And so we hear that and we say, what a wonderful message. Not only is this man's uh, reproach taken away, but he's going to give birth to a child named John, commemorating the grace of God, which is what John communicates in, in his name, that the grace of God is certainly uh, present and with us, and God remembers his promises, as Zachariah's name communicates. So you have this, this wonderful declaration of the mercy and steadfast love of God. But then we find in our text, prior to this, or uh, as we have the announcement of John, we find the history over John enters into time. We have this notion of Tiberius Caesar. <coughs> it's calling to our attention Caesar's ruling. So we think now of world peace, that the very thing that Christ was to establish was already established. Pontius Pilate is a governor. We're going to encounter him in the trial of Christ. Herod the Tetrarch, uh, Son of Herod the Great, not, not known for being a very compassionate man, to say the least. Philip the Tetrarch, again, uh, communicating to us another son of Herod the Great. And so when, when we hear this, we're like, okay, so John is coming to announce the final judgment. Then we have these strong players who are ruling over the district, communicating that Israel is not in a place of glory. It's in a place of suffering. And so as John is born and as he matures and he grows up, we find in 3 verse 2 that the word of the Lord came to him. <coughs> this tells us in a prophetic tradition like Isaiah 51 that the Lord puts his words into the prophet's mouth. Now this is important because John is not some individual who's self-deceived and thinks, well, I'm just going to announce that a Messiah is coming. 
I'm going to stir up a revolution. I'm going to stir up some trouble. That, that's not at all what's going on in the mission of John. Luke, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us he is a duly called, uh, a properly constituted prophet, commissioned by God in the prophetic tradition. He's been predicted by Malachi, the uh, statement of Isaiah announcing the arrival of the exiles, leaving uh, Babylon is attributed to this man. This is his mission. And yet we find that as he enters into the history, and we know this man in this time, we, we know that he is duly constituted, and yet it seems that it's not very victorious. So what does John then consciously do with his mission? Well, we notice that not only is he predicted by Malachi, which is prestigious, announcing the day of the Lord, the coming of the Messiah, the, the one who brings reformation, but as I already alluded to in Isaiah 40, verse 3, is a verse that's attributed to him as a messenger. The messenger who goes basically is a positive Pied Piper. He's going to lead the people of Israel by his voice, by his mission, to the Messiah, lead them out of exile, and bring them to where they are supposed to go. And, and, and we know the, the beauty of this. All the obstacles, everything that stands in the way, the mountains, the valleys, the, the pathway that becomes threatening like Israel going through their wilderness sojourn is all going to be laid low. This individual, merely by his voice, is literally going to move mountains. He's going to manifest the power of God in leading the Lord's people. Now, when we think about this, this traveling, remember when we went through Zechariah, and I said probably one of the prophets that's downplayed the most in terms of the ministry of John and the ministry of Christ is a prophet Zechariah. So remember a few passages we looked at where we think of Zechariah 1, verses 18 through 20, where we have the craftsmen who come and basically dismantle the mountains. Zechariah 4, verse 7, that the great mountains will be laid to, to rest and, and cut down. We think of Zechariah 14, a climatic uh, chapter of what the mountains laid low in the final judgment. So when, when John is here in terms of his mission. He's here communicating the final judgment of God. I mean, that's really what he's doing. And so consciously in his mind, we can understand there's an urgency. Judgment's coming. That's the Christmas story. The Christmas story is a mighty a warrior king who enters history, takes up arms, and he's going to bring about judgment with a fire sword and basically level everything and bring his people into, into his wrath. John's the herald of this great king, God himself. And so as, as John goes about his mission, notice the message that John brings in very briefly. He calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. Now I'm not one that's known for church growth, but I'm, I'm guessing this isn't a way to win and influence people when they come out to listen to you and immediately you just call them a brood of vipers. Uh, this is not complimentary. Uh, we have the same sort of language in our DNA. You're a snake. You're, you're not trustworthy. Uh, you're deceptive. I, I don't want to be around you is basically what John's saying. It's a harsh rebuke. 
He then exhorts people to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In verse 8, again, that, that reminder. He gives them a warning in verse 8 that they're not to trust in Abraham as their father, which tells us a, a very thing we can struggle with, doesn't it? That we can trust in our own personal identity, trust in our own works, trust in our own things that we have done, and think because we've done these things that, that maybe we're better than someone else or maybe we're more righteous than someone else because we've done these things. And John's saying, abandon all that hope. He's not saying Abraham wasn't a legitimate patriarch. He's not cutting down Abraham in any way or the Abrahamic promise. But what he's calling the people to do is to not trust in their covenant lineage, not to trust in their identity. And to understand that they need to bow their knee before the Christ. As he calls them to realize there's one coming who brings fire and judgment. And you don't want to be cut down and thrown into the fire. And so for John, the mission of Christ, as John sees his mission announcing Christ's coming, his mission is to announce the urgency of repentance. Fire judgment is coming. So we might say, well then, let's try and, and pull this in closer in terms of Christmas and why is John so significant for the Christmas story or what is his association with Christmas? We can say John's like the other prophets. We've already said that. He's duly called, he's constituted properly, he takes the words of God in his mouth. But there's something unique about John that, that we can't miss in terms of the Old Testament prophets. We have this transition from the old to the new. John is a prophet, unlike Malachi, who closes the Old Testament and prophesies properly the coming of Christ, but he dies. He doesn't see the fulfillment of his prophecy in his lifetime. But the difference with John the Baptist is he sees the fulfillment and fruition of his prophecy. So he sees a Christ child grown up and mature. And so you can understand now when, when, when John is doing his mission and he looks upon Christ, he's seeing the fulfillment of his mission. And so in terms of, of his mission now and his tie to Christ, he has an understanding of the significance of Christ's entrance into history. It is not just an infant child. It is not a peasant child. This is a warrior for John. A warrior who takes the foreign leaders and throws them off the backs of Israel. One who comes and brings a definitive final judgment. This is why he gives a warning when we look more at his message. The wrath to come. Divine punishment. That's what Christ brings. The acts. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. In other words, he's saying, watch out. You better beware, because when this Messiah comes, he is rigorous. He, he is one who carries out his judgment without any favoritism at all. And then he goes on, and, and he talks about the fire, a fire that Malachi warns about of this final judgment. And this isn't completely out of line, because even Christ himself speaks of fire, the disciples want to cast fire upon a Samaritan village in Luke chapter 9 because they reject Christ. 
Christ says in Luke 12, verse 49, he wants to cast fire on this earth. That's what he sees as his mission. Luke 17, verse 29, a recollection of the fire that fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we can think that maybe John is out of line, but, but there's something here where, where John understands the mission of Christ and the day of the Lord. And as the day of the Lord manifests itself, we think of Zechariah, we think of Malachi, we think of Isaiah and Joel, of that final judgment event that's going to transpire. There's nothing sentimental about this. And if we skip down in John's speech, and we look at verse 16, what does he tell us? Fire judgment, winnowing fork. We think about verse 17, an unquenchable fire. And so for John, there is a Christmas story of a Messiah warrior who's coming to bring final and definitive judgment. And so we hear that and we may say, well, we can see where, where John gets this. But this doesn't really align with what we understand as a Christmas story of Christ rejected by man, born in a stable to a peasant family, not one who seems in terms of the world standard being overly successful. He doesn't have the most scholarly disciples when he manifests himself. And so what, what goes on here? Well, John himself questions this very thing. Because we notice in verse 20, John is put in prison. So there's this little event that happens where Herod encourages Philip's wife to divorce him, and Herod divorces his wife. And so technically there's nothing wrong, and then he takes Herodias to be his wife, and there's a whole lot of scandal going on there. And John dares to speak out against this. And so as a result, to silence him, he's put in prison. And you can understand with John with this mission, well, there's nothing to worry about. Christ is going to come. He's going to bust down the, the, the doors. I'm going to come out of this prison. Judgment's going to fall upon Herod and all is well. But we find in Luke 7, John himself questions his identity. And this is significant. Because as we recalled his history with Zachariah and Elizabeth, this child took away their reproach in the sense that the scandal of them not having a child, now they have a child. But not only that, there is an explicit declaration he is the reformer of Israel, the reformer prophet in the line of Elijah and Isaiah, a prestigious line. And John himself has stood up and been imprisoned for his own message, calling the leaders of Israel a brood of vipers, and telling people that they better not trust in Abraham because the axe is laid at the root. Israel's about to be cut off. Judgment is coming. <coughs> and so John, as he remains in prison, sends his disciples to Christ. And he wants to know, is my identity false? Have I been lied to? Was my prophetic mission a a lie? Am I not really called as a prophet? Is there self-deception going on here? Did my parents lie to me? Are you the Christ or do we look to another? Do you understand how profound that question is? This is John the herald of the great king, the one who prepares the way 
for the great king to enter history. And now as he's in prison, he's wrestling with his faith. He's wrestling with his identity. He's wrestling with who is Christ. Because in John's mind, this is a Zechariah 14, the, the Malachi 4 type Messiah who comes and brings judgment and uproots the mountains. And so what do we do with Christ? What does Christ do? Because he's obviously not bringing the judgment that John predicted. Well, Christ could cite a lot of passages from Isaiah. And he could go through the final judgment verdict. In fact, you go to Isaiah 62 that deals with the final judgment that's as part of this grouping of Isaiah's prophecies. But he appeals of Isaiah 61, laying out his mission as, as basically this is his parameters, what, what the Father has given him to do. In Isaiah 61, verse 1, it's not a passage at all about leveling mountains. It's not a passage about cutting off the foreign rulers. It's not a passage about casting fire on the enemies. But it's a passage where he lays out the significance of really the Christmas story. Where he says that he's the one who brings the gospel to the poor. The poor are people individuals exploit for opportunity. The poor have no influence. They're not significant. Kings are not really going to be all that concerned about the poor. They're more of an inconvenience. Or maybe you can use them to prop yourself up for a little while. But it's all about abuse. It's not about love. It's not about care. But he brings the gospel to the poor. He goes on and says he binds up the brokenhearted. Now, the brokenhearted in terms of this mission is it's those who have dreams, they had ideals, they, they wanted to do something, saw something great, much like John. And then their ideals are absolutely shattered and are brought to a place where they're just brought to their knees and life is hopeless. He has come for those people who are broken, destitute. Their dreams have been shattered and feel as if, and feel as if there's no hope. He says that he goes and he brings liberty to the captives. They're not going to stay in their place. So much like what we've had in Isaiah of bringing out the people from exile, it's a bigger picture now. It's not Israel proper in Babylon. But we have now some people who have been cast off, those who are not worthy of the Messiah's affection and attention are those who are brought to life. Ultimately, the ones that Christ identifies himself with are in a position of John. And so what Christ is saying to John is, John, you're not seeing the full picture of my mission. Yes, my mission is to bring judgment. Yes, my mission is to manifest the day of the Lord. It is to do those things. And the final judgment is coming. But Christ says right now, it's not just to tear down, but it's to do the hard thing of building up. And he's building up a kingdom with people and citizens that are unlikely to be recipients of this kingdom. You don't come to the poor. You don't come to the people with the shattered dreams. You don't come to the people who are exiled in a foreign place and are cast off. 
But Christ is saying, this is who I lay my life down for. I come to such people that the world has cast off. Individuals who think they are beyond redemption, unworthy of affection, unworthy of the Lord's love. People who have given up on life. People who feel as if there is no purpose in going on. People who are broken by their sin, broken by this age. Christ says, those are the ones I have come to release. This is why Christ is born in a manger, rejected by his people, humble, because he is the one that before he brings a final judgment must endure it in our place. Before he can identify with the abused, he has to be abused. Before Christ can be triumphant, he must first suffer. So the mission of John, not fully grasping the mission of Christ, It's not that John is deranged. It's not that John has failed to understand prophecy. It's that John hasn't had the full picture of what the prophecy of Christ is. For John, it is only judgment. It is only judgment on those who deserve judgment. But what John fails to see, what so often we fail to see, is that Christ comes for the unworthy to take the unworthy and to make them worthy. And we need to see ourselves as the unworthy people. And anything that we've done by the grace of God is all a manifestation of his mercy. It's a manifestation of the power of his spirit. And it's the joy of knowing we have been set apart unto him, that he has taken the unworthy people, makes them worthy, He leads us on our wilderness sojourn, guaranteeing our ultimate victory. Let us then understand in terms of this age, it's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be joyful. It's not always going to be something that's free of suffering. In fact, we find that we're still going to suffer. We're still going to experience the pain of the common curse. We're still going to experience the pain of death unless our Lord comes again. And we say, well, then what is the hope at Christmas? The hope at Christmas is knowing that our Lord has endured these things in our place. And like John the Baptist, we may think we're walking through this alone, but the assurance that Christ gives is we're not walking through this alone. Our gracious and good shepherd does not turn his back on his broken people. The gracious and good shepherd continues to lead his people and to bring us to Mount Zion. Let us also remember the other message that we saw in Zechariah as we see in Hebrews. There's a recollection that we begin at one mountain. And we can find that mountain here with the Great Commission. And we're sojourning to Mount Zion. And the assurance is that as the Lord's redeemed saints... No matter what we face, no matter what we've done, no matter what overwhelms us, we can be assured that our gracious God, our gracious King, will shepherd us through that event because He is a God who is merciful, a God who has been cut off, a God who has endured the mission of the suffering servant, and the God who gives that gracious call of Isaiah 61, the assurance that he frees the captives. 
Let us find our freedom in him as his redeemed. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.